I want to invite you to take your Bibles for our Bible study this morning and join with me in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. I don't know if you realize, but there's a game on tonight, okay, that's happening. And just to see where our minds are, let me do a little bit of trivia. Thousands of footballs made every year here in America. How many new footballs do you think are used in the Super Bowl? 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 70, 100, or 110? 50 is not right. 20 is not right. 30 is not right. Not 110. It's right around 70. They use, on average, 72 footballs in that course of that game. Here's one for you. Which team has been to the most Super Bowls of these teams? Which one or two or three have been to the most? It is not Cleveland. Okay. Okay. It's not Dallas. There they are, the number that they went to. Okay, and I think San Francisco, this will be their eighth. Here's one for you. Okay, which team teams have won the most Super Bowls? What did somebody say about Pittsburgh? What's that? He's got it, got down pat. There you go. There's the, the wins that they have so far. <clears throat> Minnesota. Minnesota. <laughs> Let's get the important part of today. What day of the year do Americans consume the most food? Christmas, 4th of July, Super Bowl Sunday, Thanksgiving, Easter, New Year's Day, or your birthday at Shady Maple? (laughs) Which one? Thanksgiving, number one. Number two, Super Bowl Sunday. Wow. Wow. What are the most popular foods consumed on Super Bowl? Scrapple, chicken wings, potato, pizza, meatballs, liver and onions. Scrapple is not in the top one. The bottom 100. Top five choices of food. There they are for you okay, on Super Bowl Sunday. Here's one. Super Bowl commercials. 1967, 37,000 for 30 seconds. 900,000 for 30 seconds in 94. 150,000 for every second in 2015. What will a 30-second commercial cost tonight? (laughs) Now we know who's using their phone during the service. (laughs) Is it 5.6 or 5.2? I think, yeah, yeah, I think it is 5.6. Yeah, yep, you're right. Yeah. And this is the first year they were all sold out by November. Okay. Um, Of the top 10 most viewed, that is largest single viewing audience, TV programs of all time, how many, if any, were Super Bowls? One, two, three, four, five. Six is not right. Nine. Uh, so is it a major event? Yeah, it really is. Which team has been to the most Super Bowls without a win? <laughs> oh, and four. But they're not the only one. Buffalo is right with me. Okay, there we go. I think that what has happened, God has said, God forbid Minnesota ever win a Super Bowl. In the Bible, there are times where there is a God forbid. In fact, there are several times that the phrase shows up. If you're joining with us, what we typically do is we we, uh, go through and take book studies. The last year we've done Judges and Daniel and Job and Mark. And so just for a break, I wanted to do a different type of study, and that study would be a topical textual study for just a few weeks for a difference for us, for me, for you. And I wanted to just look at these different texts of where it says, God forbid. I want to remind you that in these texts, the the Hebrew words don't literally, or Greek words, don't literally say God forbid. It is a phrase that if it was, it was literally... 
translated, be it far from me, may it never be. Those who, like in, I'm using King James, and they translated, God forbid, because it's that idea. May it never happen. God forbid it would ever happen. Now, they're not all stated by God. We looked at one that God said, God forbid I would ever bless those who don't follow me and honor me. And what I want to do is look at some that are these strong statements and look in Romans. And Romans has several of these that show up. Three of them show up in Romans chapter 3. Now, to get the gist of that whole section of that book, let me back up a little bit and just do a little bit of a reminder for all of you. Okay, the book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul, and it's written right around this period of time that we have on the board, 55-56 AD. It is written to the people who are living in Rome, the believers who are gathered like you, gathered on a Sunday, and they're in that city of Rome. Most of them would be living in that city on a permanent basis, capital city of the empire, there would be a mixture of Jews and Gentiles in the church, especially that comes out in chapters 2 and 3 because he's talking to the Jews in particular. And so there's a, there's a lot of people, a blended society, there's a lot of slaves in Rome. The population is majority of slaves. So some of the people in the church are nobles. Some are going to be slaves. And so he's got this blend of people. The interesting thought that you have to keep in mind as you go through the book of Romans, especially where we're going to open up this morning, is you have to remember why did he write this. Okay, he wrote it, first of all, to say, greetings, hi. Okay, it's a personal letter. The ending of the book is where he does a lot of his personal comments and say, say hello to so-and-so, say hello to them. I recommend and commend Phoebe to you. And he lists a number of people. And so he's writing to them with that personal idea and telling them about the desire he has to visit them. That leads to his second reason of writing. That in chapter 15 he says, I want to come and visit you, but when I come, I need your help. And he's being very transparent with them. I need and want to get to Gaul or Spain. I want to get there and preach the word, but I need financial assistance. He typically didn't do this. This is one of the epistles that Paul was very open in saying, you know, I I need your help financially as a missionary. But the bulk of the book, the vast majority is, this is many call it the constitution of the Christian faith, the declaration of the Christian faith. This is talking about the gospel. And what he does is he gives a theological run through the whole book. The first couple chapters, three chapters, are talking about sin. Then the next couple chapters, four and five, they talk about salvation how salvation comes. Then in chapter 6 and 7, it's about sanctification, growing, and you as believers, we're going to get there next week to God forbid that we would, we would sin, that grace may abound. Then you get into chapter 8, and I'm going to break it up. This is my personal way of doing it. Chapter 8 is the security of the believers. Chapters 9, 10, 11 is security of the Jews because God has sovereignly chosen them to be the exalted nation. And then what he does in the last few chapters is he talks about serving. How believers are supposed to serve one another, use your gifts, present your bodies a living sacrifice, those types of things. Now, what we're focusing on is chapter 3. So we're in the section of the book that he talks about who needs to be saved and why. And that's the gist of chapter 1, 2, and 3. And when you get into it, he makes it very, very clear in this section, there's going to be judgment. And he's talking about sin in our lives is going to be judged. And what he does is he talks about how that judgment is so deserved in just setting the scene. Go to chapter 1. And he talks in chapter 1, verses 18 and following, why judgment is deserved. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the very creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, when they saw that there was a creator, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, foolish hearts were darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God." into an image made like to corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, creeping things. Mythology. 
People worship, animal worship, moon worship. That's what he's talking about. Then he goes on, he says, and there's going to be judgment on others because of their participation in forbidden deeds. Jump down to verse, let's pick verse 24. As it continues, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served a creature more than the creator who is forever to be blessed. For this cause God gave them up to their vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burning their lusts one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet or deserved. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now in verses 26 and 27 it's a social issue for us today but what has the word of God just condemned? Homosexuality. Okay he's been very clear about that because men and ladies were not created to be sexually interactive with their own gender. And then he goes on, he says, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, and even disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the what? Judgment of God, that they which commit such things are what? Worthy of death. Not only do they do the same, but they have pleasure in them that do them. That's the setting of what he's going to get into in chapters 2 and 3. He's saying that there is judgment. And this judgment is really, really serious. And so what he does in chapter 2 is he gets very pointed. In chapter 2 he says, by the way, this judgment is going to fall on you folk who are very judgmental. Look at verse 1 of the next chapter. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are that judge. For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judge, often you do the same things. For we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them that commit such things. And you think this, O man, that judge them which do these things, and yet you do the same, that you shall escape the judgment of God? And so after you take that whole list, and by the way, this is where it's easy for us to do. We can condemn those who are involved, engaged in homosexuality, and then... We say, wait a minute, we don't look in the mirror and say, but what am I involved in? Backbiting, boasting, those other things that were mentioned. And he said, you can't do that. You can't do that. If you break the law in one point, do you break the law on all points? Okay. And so he's saying, be careful, those who are judging. He's very clear. You're going to be judged. Even if you're religious, even if you're sitting up and saying, hmm, bad sin, bad sin, bad sin. If you have unforgiven sin in your life, you're going to be judged. Then he goes to the Jews. Which, remember, part of the church is made up of these individuals. And he's very pointed in verse 17. Behold, you who are called, you that are called Jews, you rest or you have your confidence in the law. You make your boast of God. You know his will. You approve the things that are more excellent, the higher standards that were given in the Ten Commandments, etc. Being instructed out of the law. And you're confident that you yourself are a guide of the blind and a light of them that are in darkness an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the babes, which has the form of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, which teach others, don't you teach yourself? You that preach a man should not steal, don't you steal? Remember, the Jews would take from the widows, and they would call it okay, and they would do all these rituals and things. And so he, he ends up by basically saying, and I can do at the end of verse 25, he says, if you be a breaker of the law, your circumcision, your Jewishness, is made as if it wasn't Jewish. And so he's very pointed with them, saying, you Jews are going to be judged as well. Now, that leads to some really important thoughts in the next few verses. And I know this is going to be in-depth. This is going to be for the mature Christian, but I hope you listen. Okay, where, where he goes. The audience that he's writing to is a church like this, except for there would be a Jewish sector because our city had a big Jewish element of Church of Rome. And he knows there's going to be some in that church that are going to start raising objections. And they're going to start saying, yeah, but what about... And it's never been explained before. And so now he has to explain... And in this section, he's going to ask and answer a number of questions, especially related to the Jews and their faith. And he's going to end up saying three times, God forbid, God forbid, God forbid. And though it's to the Jews, 
uh, that were questioning some things, there's some real application to you and me. Here's, here's what he does, okay? They start asking this question, or he poses it as if the, somebody's asked it. Well, if we're going to be judged, we Jews, then what advantage do we have being Jewish, that they would call being of the concision, being of that branding of the Jews? Oh, aren't we called God's chosen people? So how does this work? And so basically they're saying, so they're going to challenge Paul and say, so there's no benefit to being a Jew? Aren't we God's chosen people? And he responds in verse 2 of chapter 3. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't say that you, you, there was no benefit. He's saying there is a profit. There is a benefit to being Jewish much in every way. And so he's telling them there's lots of benefits that you had, advantages of having a Jewish background. Again, you and I know this. Okay, They were God's chosen people. They are God's chosen people. They have a unique position amongst all nations. We can go in the Old Testament, find multiple verses that talk about how you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Behold, the heaven, the, hev- the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's. The earth also, all that is therein, only the Lord had delight in your fathers to love them. He chose their seed after them, even you above all the people. We can read elsewhere, for you are a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen you to be a peculiar, not a strange, but a, but a privileged people unto himself above all the nations. We can read that Isaiah wrote, this people have I formed for myself, quoting God, they shall show forth my praise, what could have been done more to my vineyard, that's the Jews, that I have not already done for them. He, it's clear, the Jews are God's chosen people, yes? Okay, God has spared them through unbelievable persecutions and holocausts. They, they, are, they are a special people. Okay, God made several covenants with them. True? The covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, the covenant with Abraham. He made covenants with them. Special contracts with them. He didn't make them with you and me, the Gentiles. He made them with the Jews that you read in the Old Testament. They were a people, a chosen people, a special people, in that the Messiah came through their lineage. True? Okay? So salvation comes of the Jews. They're special in that regard. But he doesn't list all those. He says there's many benefits of being Jew, but the primary benefit, look at the end of verse 2. The primary benefit, much in every way, but chiefly, what is the benefit that the Jews had? To them were entrusted the... Oracles of God. The statements, you know, in, in that day the people would understand totally because they could go to a pagan temple and they would, they would talk to individuals and there would be proclamations made and they would call those oracles, supernatural revealing. And he said, you, of all people of the world, you Jews are benefited this way. You were given the speech of God. We would call that the what? The words of God the Old Testament, that they were given above all people. And we understand that. Moses gave them the law. He gave them the Ten Commandments. They were given to the Jews. We understand all these different prophets, and we can name the major and the minor prophets, that they were speaking in the Daniels, the Isaiahs, and the Amos, and the Obadiah, and that they had that, that Old Testament. They were the ones that had the Word of God. It wasn't given to other nations. It was given to the Jews, and they were commanded to do what with it? Take it and share it. And then to them came not only the written word of God, but who came to them as the living word of God? It was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes, the living word of God. So as a people group, did they get first contact with God? In that sense. Yeah, they were very privileged. And so when we think through what Paul is saying is, the Jews were the only ones with the complete word of God for generations. That's a benefit. The Jews had all they needed to know to recognize God coming in the flesh. They had it. Jesus even said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. Take your Old Testament. Read it. You will find out I am Messiah. So they had that message. They had that revelation. But we know what they did with it. They failed to use and follow scripture, right? In fact, what did they do with their Old Testament and their traditions? They made them equal. 
All of a sudden, the word of God became equal, I shouldn't say it that way, their tradition that said, okay, on the Sabbath day, you can only walk so many feet, and that's it. That became equal to what was God had revealed. And they started adding their rules, the rules like this one, that if any of you ladies this morning, uh, okay, this isn't the Sabbath day, but say it was Sabbath day. If any of you looked in the mirror and you plucked a gray hair, you violated the Sabbath because you were doing beautician work. Okay? If you're walking down a road and you see somebody sick, you can't give them medicines because then you're practicing like a doctor. And if you take a chair like this or this thing, move it across a dirt floor on the Sabbath day, and it made a furrow in the dirt, that's, that's farming. Okay. And so they added all these rules and regulations and how you have to wash, and they made all their rules equal to the Word of God. We understand. We know that. We know that they did that. We know that they didn't search for the Messiah in the Scriptures. We know that they, they then made it easy for themselves. Instead of studying the Bible, they learned their rules. And by the way, isn't that true of us today? That we would rather at times not study the Word of God, but tell me the five things I need to do. You know, then, that I can be a, a godly Christian. Just give me, give me a list. And so they did that. And then, then on top of it, they reject the Christ. Everything that talks about him and Jesus has to say to them that time, he says, you err, you Sadducees, you teachers, you rabbis, you err because you do not know the scriptures and then he adds in, do not know the power of God. And so there's this complication that Paul is writing to these people who this is their background. He is saying, yes, you did have some benefit, but he's implying that as a people group, you didn't take advantage of the benefit you didn't study the scriptures. Therefore, you're going to be judged. To whom much is given. Okay, right? And so he's telling the Jews in that church, he's saying, you're, you're going to be judged. You can't, you can't hang on and say, I'm going to heaven because I'm a Jew. We are special people. Yes, you were special, but you need to personally do what? To avoid judgment. Call upon Jesus Christ as your Savior. Accept him as your Messiah God. And so he's stating these things. He's implying things. He's going to develop them further on. But as he's writing right now at this moment, he knows that somebody's going to ask the next question. It's going to come up. Probably did come up when he was debating with some of these people. Well, what if our peoples didn't believe? Which is true, they didn't. What about all of those promises God made to us Jews? The idea is, if we didn't as a nation believe in Christ, is all of God's covenants broken? All of those benefits that he gave us, all those blessings, are they done? Legitimate question. And Paul's response, after he asked this in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief, shall the unbelief of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they say we have no king but Caesar, shall it make the faith the promises? The faithfulness, by the way, that's a bread of rendering. The faithfulness of God without effect. Is God going to keep his word to us as a nation if we did not believe in him the way we should have. And he's going to answer and he's going to say, God forbid, may it never be. Now you have to understand where he's saying this. He's talking on a national level. He's not talking on a personal level. Personally, do they need to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved? Yes. Yes. Nationally. Here's the question. Will the Jews ever get saved? Okay, that's, that's where he's getting to. Will God keep his unconditional promises no matter what the people have done so far? And the answer is absolutely. God promised to make the Jews a great nation one day in his kingdom. Will he make them the great nation one day in his kingdom on earth? Absolutely, positively. He, God promised that one day all the Jews will come to belief in Jesus Christ. Will that happen one day? 
He will. When they see Jesus coming in all of his glory, the remnant of the Jews, according to Zechariah 14, will turn and repent and call upon Christ the Savior. That's God's promise to them. Will this happen? God promised that one day an heir, a descendant of David, would sit on the throne and rule the entire world from Jerusalem. Will that still happen? Though they had rejected Christ. Yes, that promise will still happen. God promised he would bless those that bless the Jews and curse them that curse the Jews. Is this promise still in effect on a national basis? Yes. Yes. His point is, and this, is, this becomes all of chapters 9, 10, and 11. Has God cast off the Jews? Will he ever work with them again? And Paul will answer, God forbid, in 9 and, 10, 9 and 11, he will state again, God forbid that God will not one day fulfill his promises. What God promised the Jews will happen as a nation. That it will take place one day. And then Paul goes on and makes this statement, and, and he says, right, right after that, he says, Yea, let God be true, every man a liar. He's making a contrast, the way he's doing it. He's just making a comparison. God is always faithful. Men, they don't always keep their word. Okay? And then he quotes David when David had violated the word of God and gotten into sin with Bathsheba. And he says, this is what David even said when David was in his repentance mode, that you, God, might be justified in what you said, in your sayings, and might be overcome when you are judged literally that you will prevail when you are questioned. That your word will always be true. And that's where we're coming to. God forbid, let's put it this way. God is always faithful and reliable in what he says he will do. That's his point to this church. And he's talking particularly to the Jews. But he's saying to them, God forbid that you would ever question the veracity of God's promises. Veracity is the truthfulness, the reliability, the, the absolutes, the possibility of it happening. Our application, God forbid that we would ever question the veracity of God's promises. God, God has promised that if we call upon him, we shall be saved forever. God forbid that we would, pro- that we would question whether he can keep us saved. God forbid that we would question whether he forgives us when we repent of our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us. God forbid... That we would question whether or not God will keep his word and give us the strength we need to live for him. God forbid that we would question whether or not he's going to answer our prayers. Now, he may not answer it the way we want him to, but he will answer them. God forbid that we would start saying, wait a minute, is God with me? Is God with me? And the answer is, he is always with us. I will be with you always, even unto the... Yeah, God forbid that we would start questioning whether God is going to use his word or not. When we share the word of God, when we give out the word of God, we have the promise of God that his word will not return void. That it will accomplish what he wants. God forbid that we begin to question whether or not he's going to rapture us. We can joke about it. The guys were sitting, or the guys were in the choir. Half you men were down here from choir. The boys were there. And my question to the, the teen guys is, hey guys, uh, do you, everybody else get raptured? Okay. We know we can joke like that. Oh, they got raptured. We didn't. Is that the way it's going to happen? No. No. Will he rapture all who are part of his church? Absolutely. His bride's going to be taken to heaven. God forbid that we would question that. God forbid that you and I would start questioning that God would allow us to have more than we can handle. God forbid that we would start saying, well, I don't know if God's working in my kid's heart when we're giving out the word, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. God forbid that we would start doubting whether God would give us what we need as we trust him. God forbid that you would start doubting that God could rechange and remake and revitalize your marriage, your family, your home. God will always keep his word. And that's the point of Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. God's veracity. He is going to be faithful to whatever he promised. That's the first. But Paul goes on. He says there's going to be some city in the church, some Jews, who are going to ask another question. And their question is, let me, 
It's such a weird question. Um, Let me take you down into where he makes this statement. The end of verse 5. Do you have something in parentheses in the end of verse 5? Yes, no? What's in your parentheses? I speak as a man. Okay, let let me put that. He is saying, I am going to say something that is pure human reasoning. This is what some are saying with pure human reasoning. This is not a divine comment from the mouth of God. This is the way men will speak. And truly, men will speak this way. So put that as, here's where he starts. And by the way, he'll say in verse 8 that some slander us. So these are accusations being made by, this is what Paul is saying. He says, it's not true. I never said this. And those who say this or ask this question or make this, this statement, they're speaking in, in human reasoning. Let me preface everything I do with that. Here's where he goes. Here's the question. If our unrighteousness commands or brings to, to light, makes it very clear the righteousness of God. Okay, now just take that phrase. Before we go any further, please hang on. The idea is, does in some way, does our sin magnify God's greatness and goodness? Is that a possibility? You're not sure. Okay, let me, let me, let me put this again from a, a you know, where, where it could happen. How might sin, God's response to our sin, display his goodness and greatness? His mercy. He shows mercy. Does that magnify God? Okay, what else? His compassion. Okay, towards us, that magnifies God. What else? His forgiveness. His love. Anything else? His patience. How about his holiness? Okay, we start... God, when when we start saying, okay, how does my sin, does it in any way make God bigger and better? Yeah, yeah, he is so holy, he's not touched by sin. You and I get tainted by it. We get near it, and we pick up the smell of sin. God doesn't do that. He is above creation. He is forgiving. He is patient. He is merciful. He is light. Okay? His light gets rid of the darkness. All these things that say, okay, in some peculiar way, if we want to look at it this way, does... Does sin show the greatness of God? You're still not convinced. Okay. Is, can that be twisted? Can, can in a peculiar way, can, can some people say that's the way it works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it does. It does. Okay, in a peculiar way. And so then they went a little bit further. They said this. So if our sin demonstrates how great God is, that he is so loving and so forgiving, then why don't we sin some more? The more we sin, the greater God is. Okay, now that, that's not where they started. They started with this. They started the first part of their request. For if our unrighteousness commands or brings to light the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous for judging us? Because we're making him look good. We're magnifying him via our sin. It's unfair to judge us. And in fact, not only is it unfair, then they go on they say, this comment, they say, um, for if our righteousness commends, is God unfair? God forbid. Da, 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 da. For if the truth of God hath more bounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I judged as a sinner, and not rather, as some of you slanderous, and say that we said this, let us do evil that good may come. And so that's their two, that's where they go with this thing. If our sin, in some perverted way, our sin elevates God, then we might as well go out and sin some more. And God isn't fair in judging us because when I sin, I'm magnifying God. And Paul's response to that is very simple. His answer is, God forbid. God forbid that you would think this type of way. How foolish would any... And he's basically his response is, your reasoning is very foolish. You're speaking from a human point of view. You're speaking as a person who is trying to do what? Justify your sin. Excuse your sin. It, it would be like this. We have wonderful firefighters. 
if we want to show how good our firefighters are, what should we do today? Let's go start fires. How? Okay. We have great police and they can, they can do all kinds of DNA testing and all this, you know, CSI stuff and all that. And it's wonderful and it's amazing. We love the films and we love the movies and make those TV series some of the best and most popular. Because it, wow, our police departments are so good. So in order to demonstrate how good our police departments are, let's go out and commit crimes. Let's kill people. Okay. We've got a wonderful military. To show how wonderful our military is, let's go make. Hey, our medicines are really advanced. They are so advanced they can deal with anything. Let's all go to China. (laughs) Does that all sound stupid? That's where they're going with it. And you have to remember what they're doing with this and why they're doing it. He's saying, I never, I never even said this. You're accusing us of implying this. That because we've for, been forgiven by God's great grace, we might as well go out and sin some more. He says, I not, we never said that. You're slandering us. And he, he makes the statement as he's giving answers. God forbid, verse 6, for then how shall God judge the world? His comment is, His assumption, his statement, his innate answer is, God will judge. God will judge. He's going to judge. Whether you like it or not or whatever you... Here's the point. God never condones sin. God never leads into sin. God has never tempted any man with sin. God is pure. He's great. God doesn't need us to sin to prove he's great. He's great, he's holy, he's patient, he's loving, he's forgiving without us sinning. So those who think this way, he concludes and says, your damnation is just. Because you're just trying to excuse your sin. You're trying to put your sin on God. It's God's fault that we sin. And so his conclusion is, is, you know, he's already said, don't question the veracity of God's judgment. God forbid we would question the validity of God's judgment. That can't, does God have a right to judge us? The answer is yes. Yes, absolutely. He has that right. We can't explain away judgment. We can't deny it as a reality. We can't justify our own sin in some way and pin it on God. And say, well, I'm going to stand there and I'm going to say to God, it's not fair that I use drugs. You made the trees. You made the plants. You allowed fermentation to take place. It's your fault. It's, it's bizarre. But do people go this direction? Absolutely. So the only way, and this is where Paul is going, you're not going to get out of judgment by blaming God, by accusing him. The only way to get out of judgment for your sin and standing there all by yourself before the throne of God and God saying, guilty, damned, the only way you're going to avoid that is by you, excuse me, by you having Jesus Christ come to you as your Savior and you ask him to, Jesus, be my advocate, be my Savior. You have paid for my sin. You have taken my judgment for my sin. You died. You were separated from God for my sin. You rose again, showing that it was paid in full. And now you and God are united. And when I stand before the Lord God, I'm going to look to you and say, God, the reason that I believe you should allow me to enter into heaven is I believe on your son. That's the only way. And that's where he's going to go through the book. And he goes on. And he's talking. And he's already made these two statements. God forbid we question the veracity of God's word. God forbid we question the validity of God's judgment. It's going to happen. It will take place. And the only way to avoid it is having a Savior. And there's only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So then what he does is he develops this idea and he takes the rest of the chapter and he talks about, you know, how man is condemned. And you all know these passages. What then, like verse 9, are we better than they? No, 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 no. Jews and Gentiles aren't better. No, and no wise. For we have proved both Jews and Gentiles that all are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. We jump down to verse 23. For all have sin and comfort. And he continues that whole discussion without the idea that everybody is guilty, everybody's going to be judged, you can't blame God, and the only way to avoid it is down in verse 28. He comes down to this conclusion, he says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith. Without, his, without looking to, oh, I did these things, I was baptized, I kept the law, you're justified by faith and, and by the way, fill in the blank there, faith in Jesus Christ. So he gets to that point, and all of a sudden, he makes this comment. Oh, by the way, this faith opportunity is for how many people? Verse 29. Yeah. Is he the God of the Jews only? The answer is no. Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? And the answer is yes. In other words, who can get saved? Everyone. Okay, then he concludes. He concludes the chapter. Do we then, do we then make void the portions of scriptures that were given to the Jews? The law. And he says, uh, uh, uh. No, he doesn't say it that way. He says, God forbid. God forbid that we would say, well, then that means part of God's word is no good. And he, he makes this statement, he says, you know, some of you are thinking, well, then that, that means that if we don't have to follow the law totally, that means then the law is a piece of junk. The law has no value. That, that it is a waste of manuscripts. And he says, that's just not true. That's just not true. He says, God forbid, may it never be that we would look at portions of God's word and say they're not valuable. Here, here's what we need, you know, his conclusion is, Although we are not living under the law, the Old Testament rules, is there still value in what was given to the Jews? Yes. In other words, all of God's word has value to us. All of it. It's good and valuable. You say, well, I know that. Do you read it all? Do you remember what some of us looked at this morning? All scriptures given by inspiration and all scripture is profitable? Can we learn anything from the Old Testament law? Okay, that, and that's a really important point. So let me just, in a few moments, wrap this up. The law has value. That Old Testament that he's talking about, he says, you Jews that say, well, man, we've, we've hung on to this law for years. Are you telling us that it has no value? He says, no, 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 there's some value. We don't live by it. But can it teach us? Yeah, because the gospel completes the law. Jesus said, what? I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill it. And the law doesn't get anybody to heaven, but what it does do, it shows God's high standard. It reveals what in all of us? It shows our sinfulness. And in fact, Jesus Christ said, here's the law. You had the law, and it, it, was, it was beneficial. Some of you said, the law said, do not kill. But I say unto you, I'm going to expand upon it, that you shouldn't even have hatred in your heart. Don't commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you even lust, think, dwell upon it, you're violating the law. And so Jesus made it very clear, the law has a real high standard. And that was to show that men are unable to live a perfect life. And so the law has this benefit of saying to you and me that we are sinners. I mean, take the Ten Commandments. Use it as your gospel witness. If somebody says, well, I haven't sinned, just take the Ten Commandments. Have you ever used God's name in vain? And if they say, yeah, you broke the law. You're a sinner. Have you ever disobeyed your mom and dad? You violated God's standards. Have you ever lied? Have you ever desired something that somebody has? Have you, you know, have you ever put something ahead of God in your life? It's a good tool. It's an excellent tool that you can use. It shows us as well the seriousness of sin. Because what was the requirement for covering sins? The death 
death of something innocent. It shows us as well that under the law, God was willing to accept a substitutionary sacrifice. So it has all these benefits. Do you remember in, the, in Galatians, it talks about wherefore the law is our schoolmaster. The word is paedagogos. And if you look at the picture here on the bottom of one of their vases, it gives you a classic picture of what's happening and what he meant. The teacher is the guy on the left side. The student is the one in the middle. The paedagogos, standing there holding a stick, he's the law. He didn't teach. He made sure that the student showed up. And if the student didn't listen, yeah, my dad would say, clop him across the side of the head. Okay, and he would, you know, they used to do this in churches. In colonial America, the ushers carried big sticks with knobs on the top. And if you dozed during the service, they would do what? They would tap you. Wouldn't you, you know, if we did that here, we'd get so many of one be ushers. I mean, we'd, we'd just, the, the crowd would, I would want to usher. <laughs> the Pythagogos was the law who brought the student to the master. And they would learn from the master and he made sure he listened. He wasn't the master. In the Bible, the law brings us to who? Jesus Christ. The law points to Jesus Christ. The law is all about Jesus being the perfect Lamb of God. And so he brings this all out and he says, the law points to Christ. It has value. It, even though we don't live by it anymore, it's still pointed to Christ. He gives us prophecies and predictions and typology. The law had value. And so he's talking to his church audience and saying, listen, don't scratch your Old Testament. Don't delete it from your, you know, from your Kindle. It still has value. Don't erase it from your reading chart. It has value. All the word of God has value for us. We may not live by every iota of what was stated to certain peoples at certain times, but it has value to us. It teaches us, it instructs us, it gives us correction. It's a valuable tool that sometimes we just kind of overlook. Uh, talking about overlooking, this fellow, Michael Sparks, he goes to a garage sale and there he's going to buy something and he sees that they have a yellow, ta- you know, some salt and pepper shakers, a tattered yellow declaration of independence and he paid $2.48 for the stuff. Took it home and then after weeks he was looking at that old declaration and thinking, I wonder if this thing is more valuable than $2.48. He had it and didn't realize the value of it. And what happened is he found out that the John Quincy Adams had authorized 200 copies made of the Declaration of Independence in 1820. And there was only 35 that still were in existence. He realized he just found number 36 for $2.38. So he contacted you know, some historical societies and he sold it for $477,000. A pretty good markup for a garage sale. Okay? Hey, he's not the only one. This tool and die maker living in Indiana, he was going to go and fix up his apartment, so he bought some old furniture for 30 bucks, and he bought a painting. Took the painting, and he strategically located it over a hole in his apartment wall. Covered it up. A couple of years later, he's playing a game that's called Masterpiece, and it's a game with art paintings and statues on it, things like that. And you're supposed to use this trivia game to guess who made it and da-da-da-da. And he's looking at one of the cards in the game and he looks at his painting on the wall. And he's going, wait a minute, they look a lot alike. And so research was being done. He found out that uh, what happened is his flower portrait that he got for 30 bucks with some other furniture was very valuable and it was it was painted by this Martin Johnson Heed and so he put it up for auction got 1.2 and a quarter million dollars something that he just thought was just ordinary run of the mill listen your bible is not ordinary and run of the mill it's a priceless masterpiece your bible is something that's valuable so valuable that you should be reading it every day you should not be discounting it. Well, we don't need to live by that anymore. So it's No! God forbid that you would say, the word of God is not important in my life. 
that you would decry the word of God. Here, here's a guy in England. He loses a, uh, one of his hammers in his field. He tells his friend, come on over. Let's use your, one of your uh, metal detectors and let's find. So they found, as they were looking for his hammer, they found all these gold coins from the era of Rome. Well, Britain has a law that you can't keep this stuff. The government gets it. But they have to pay you market value for it. So they paid him for what he found, this, this gold mine that he found, and he ended up getting $1.75 million for something that he found. Now, what should we do with all this? Let's go get our metal detectors and check out. That's not the point. The point is the word of God is a treasure trove that you might, you might you're losing your way in life and you need direction. Get into the word of God. You know, there's, it's, it's, it's amazing. Do you, any of you hear of the crater of Diamonds State Park down in Arkansas? Have you been there? Okay. It's the motto of the park is you find it, you keep it. And so people are out there looking for diamonds every day. You can go and do this. And then I'll just list off some of the things that people have found over the years that they find these, these diamonds that have great value. That they can go down and they can see in this field that just seems so commonplace. Okay, what does that mean? Summer vacation, we're headed to Arkansas. <laughs> That's okay if you think that. As long as you think in the bigger picture, let me get into the Word of God. Let me be as zealous as you know, doing the metal detector. Let me do, use my eyes as a metal detector into the Word of God. Let me go out there and mine out the diamonds of God's word. Let me get into the word of God. It's all valuable. It's beneficial. It helps us in our everyday life. There's so many benefits. We didn't talk about it in some of the classes and others maybe did. But we we're just alluding to this in Sunday school. Next week we'll be developing this more. The, per, the, the blessings, the benefits of being in the word of God. But what good is the word of God if you're not in it? There's a family that had the experience. 2011. Huge number of tornadoes hit down in south. This one family, the Hardy family, they heard the sirens, but they didn't have time, and they didn't have a place to get to shelter, nor time, and the one shelter that they thought was solid all of a sudden blew over. They run into a grove of trees. They see the tornado coming, and they tied themselves and their children between them. Here's the tree kid, me, and they tied with ropes and hung on to the tree and to the children. They survived. They were asked afterwards, the dad was asked, what motivated you to hang on so tight? (laughs) Do reporters ever ask stupid questions? What, What would motivate you to hang on? Life and death. What would motivate you to hang on to your kid? You value your child. Your child is precious to you. Is this? Do you hang on to the word of God or do you let it go day after day? Do you cling to the word of God and read it for the preciousness of getting your soul fed? Bottom line is, folk, God forbid, God forbid we'd ever say these dumb things. Like we would devalue the Word of God by not reading it. God forbid that we would ever question the validity of God's judgment. God forbid that we would start doubting the veracity of God's promises. If you're here this morning, the place to start is making sure you have put faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. He promises you will be judged. He promises he will be by you in that judgment if you ask him to be your savior. He promises to help you to understand his word if you read it.